The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. And as this is an episode of our special series, the Vice Presidencies of the United States, I'm joined by my co-host, Alex Lawson. Alex, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Jerry. I appreciate it. So we have somebody to talk about today that we've talked about quite a bit on presidencies, but this is a part of his career that gets some attention, but... It's really more in the lead up to what's coming that it's really talked about. So, Alex, are you ready to talk about Thomas Jefferson? Uh, Why the heck not? (laughs) (laughs) So, as we have covered Thomas Jefferson so much and so extensively on this podcast, we don't really need to go into the full details of his pre vice presidency and post-vice presidency like we are going to do with some other figures who, unlike Jefferson, and spoiler alert, he becomes president. For some of the others who didn't become president, this will become more of a feature in the series. But for Jefferson, we're really going to do a brief summation of his time leading up to the vice presidency and when he leaves vice presidency, because we really want to focus on those four years that he served as the second vice president of the United States. So to get us started, Alex is going to read Jefferson's entry in the biographical directory of the United States Congress, like we did with the Adams episode. So that way that'll give us some framing for us being able to launch directly into his tenure as vice president. So, Alex, if you wouldn't mind reading that. Okay. Thomas Jefferson, a delegate from Virginia, vice president and third president of the United States, born at Shadwell, Virginia, in present-day Albemarle County, on April 13, 1743, attended a preparatory school, graduated from William and Mary College, Williamsburg, Virginia, in 1762, studied law, admitted to the bar, and commenced practice in 1767, member of the Colonial House of Burgesses from 1769 to 1775, member of the Continental Congress, 1775 and 1776, chairman of the committee that drew up, primary author of, and signer of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, Governor of Virginia from 1779 through 1781, member of the State House of Delegates in 1782, again a member of the Continental Congress from 1783 through 1784, appointed a minister plenipotentiary to France in 1784, and then sole minister to the King of France in 1785 for three years, Secretary of State of the United States in the Cabinet of President George Washington from 1789 through 1793, elected Vice President of the United States and served under President John Adams from 1797 through 1801, elected President of the United States in 1801 by the House of Representatives 
on the 36th ballot, re-elected in 1804, and served from March 4th, 1801 to March 3rd, 1809. Retired to his estate, Monticello, in Virginia, active in founding the University of Virginia Charlottesville, died at Monticello in Albemarle County on July 4th, 1826, and is interred in a family cemetery at Monticello. Wow, that's quite a bio. Yeah, so that's a brief summation of what we spent, I think it was 40-something episodes on. Yeah. (laughs) So Jefferson was definitely one who had an action-filled life. There was lots of stuff going on in his life. But Alex, and, and of course, in this bio, there really wasn't that much that was discussed. Do you know anything about his vice presidency, those four years that he served under John Adams? Yeah. So one thing I thought that was really interesting, and I know we'll probably get to this in a minute, was that he would be the first vice president to preside over a Senate with a Federalist majority. And they were like oil and water. Yes. And so that's definitely something that we're going to be talking about. It was not always the most harmonious relationship and with his president or with the Senate at the time. I can only imagine. But as you said, we will get to that. But I wanted to add one more thing to the mix because we also want to know where his family is because that will also play a role in this. So his wife, Martha, had been gone for some time. She passed away in 1782. So he had been a bachelor for a good amount of time. Of their six children, only two had lived to adulthood. Martha, who had been born in 1772, and Mary, who was known in adulthood as Maria, born in 1778. Now, his daughter, Martha, had married Thomas Mann Randolph Jr. in 1790, And the 24-year-old Martha, by the time of her father's assuming the vice presidency, was the mother of four children. She would have plenty more after that. But (laughs) we won't get to all of them in this episode. His other daughter, Maria, was 18 when her father became the second vice president. And though she was unmarried as of Inauguration Day, that would change before the year was up, which we will get to. Because we want to dive into his vice presidency. Mm. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. As we discussed in the Adams episode, the 1796 election, which... Once President Washington released his farewell address, which confirmed once and for all that he was not running for a third term. And believe me, Washington was very adamant, I am not running for a third term. 
Once he released that, it became, at least on paper, a contest between Vice President John Adams and former Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson. So, as the brief bio discussed, Jefferson had basically been ensconced on his Virginia Mountain Estate Monticello since leaving the State Department at the end of 1793. But this didn't mean that he was completely divorced from politics of the time, even though Jefferson would say, oh, well, I'm in retirement. Really, he was well-connected with what was going on. Indeed, he offered his encouragement from Charlottesville for congressional Democratic Republicans to seek to bring down his old rival in the cabinet, Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Even in supposed retirement, Jefferson and Hamilton continued to battle it out. Jefferson also maintained an active correspondence with his fellow Virginian, Representative James Madison, who was the recognized leader of the Democratic Republicans in Congress. Now, Jefferson saw in Madison the potential to be Washington's successor as president, encouraging him to remain in Congress, quote, unless he was going to a more splendid and more efficacious post. Hmm. So it's interesting, and we don't really... I think the general public doesn't really understand this, but at the time, Madison was really seen as the leader of the Democratic-Republican faction, not Jefferson. And even Jefferson felt that Madison was more ready to be president than necessarily him from the beginning. Madison, however, told Jefferson in March 1795, quote, that reasons of every kind, and some of them of the most insuperable, as well as obvious kind, shut my mind against the admission of any ideas such as you may seem to glance at. And that's the thing, like Madison, he realized Jefferson was the elder statesman. He was older than him. He wanted to defer to him. He felt that he was really, if anybody was going to be considered for Washington's successor, maybe this was the guy. Despite Jefferson's assertions that, quote, I would not give up my own retirement for the empire of the universe, Madison was determined to bring his friend out of retirement to serve as chief executive of the United States, and he was not alone in those sentiments. Mm -hmm. Though Madison had for years been seen as the acknowledged leader of the faction, slowly but surely, Jefferson's name was increasingly talked about as leading the cause. As Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone explained, quote, his preferred status among the Republicans was owing far less to what he had done for them than to their belief in the firmness of his convictions and their confidence in his political sagacity, that his name was the greatest among them, i.e. the Democratic Republicans, was also owing in no small degree to the advertisement his enemies had given him. So, that rivalry with Hamilton ended up, Jefferson was really seen as being in more direct contact with Hamilton as the Federalist Party leader, and Hamilton let everyone know about it. He was talking ad nauseum about Jefferson was awful, Jefferson this, Jefferson that. And just as we see in more modern politics, sometimes, you know, even negative press can be a good thing. It gets your name out there. Jefferson was a reluctant candidate. 
but he also didn't ask for his name to be removed from consideration. And this is important because at this time and even further along as we go along, you may not be saying, oh, well, I definitely want to be the candidate. But if you're not saying, I definitely don't want to be the candidate, that also speaks volumes. And so thus, Madison and other supporters took his silence as a cue that he would accept the office if elected and continued in their efforts to push him forward. So he was a tease. He was basically a tease. Mm-hmm. And and it, it goes back to this idea. And, and honestly, I think we probably want more politicians to be this way nowadays. Um, <laughs> even though it wasn't really, it was more for face value, but this idea that you shouldn't seek office office Mm -hmm. should come to you. It should be awarded to you by the public. Well, we know, yes, most of the candidates who were put forward, they really did want the office, but they at least avoided saying so in public. Jefferson, he, he waxes and wanes. Like there are times that he really does want it. There are times that he's like, oh, this really is a bad idea. But (laughs) he at least didn't say no, and that meant that he was a candidate. Interesting. So TZ McTeetherson finally decided to put his hat in the ring. Yes. All right. So he... He let somebody else put his hat. Okay. Okay. Let's let's Uh, be clear. I stand corrected. I stand corrected. He, Mr. Jefferson, would say, somebody else put his name in, not him. But meanwhile, though it wasn't universally agreed, Senator Aaron Burr of New York was the candidate that many Democratic Republicans looked to as their preferred vice presidential candidate. There's that Burr in the saddle again. The Burr in the saddle, and spoiler alert. We're going to be talking about it. I had no doubt. As we discussed in the Adams episode, this was still at the time when the Electoral College cast two ballots. So each elector cast two ballots, but there was no distinction between which ballot was for president and which was for vice president. So you basically just had two names in a common pool. And the top vote getter became the president, while the second highest vote getter became vice president. That had worked out well enough when George Washington was on the ballot because every elector was going to cast a ballot for him. Mm-hmm. And so it was basically that second ballot was, it was known that was going to be the vice president. But in the absence of a unanimously agreed upon candidate for president, nobody really knew what was going to happen. Hmm. And as we see in the votes in that election, Only the electors from Kentucky and Tennessee would cast both of their ballots for the Jefferson-Burr ticket. In Pennsylvania and Maryland, Burr got one vote less than Jefferson, while in South Carolina, electors chose the Federalist candidate for vice president, the South Carolinian Thomas Pinckney, to award their ballots alongside Jefferson. So they're basically saying they're picking a Democratic-Republican and a Federalist because the Federalist was from their state. Yikes. Meanwhile, North Carolina and Virginia were even messier, with Mm. Jefferson getting a majority of the ballots, but with electors casting ballots for a wide range of other candidates, including Samuel Adams of Massachusetts, George Clinton of New York, and one elector from the state even cast a ballot for George Washington. My gosh, what a mess. It was a mess. Ultimately, though, 
John Adams would come out on top with 71 votes, while Jefferson, as the next highest vote getter with 68 votes, was elected the second vice president. Ooh, wow. Okay. So here we go. Now, while most of the attention with the result of this election focuses on the fact that Adams and Jefferson were from different political factions, there's another situation that we should note. And this is what you mentioned, Alex, because this would really have a greater impact on the vice presidency in the day to day, Mm -hmm. because Jefferson would be the first vice president to preside over a Senate with a Federalist majority, and it would remain as such throughout his term. So it wasn't that the Federalists didn't control the Senate beforehand. It was just now they had a Democratic Republican as vice president, as the president of the Senate. Mm -hmm. So it was this divided Senate. It was the leader of the Senate is from one faction. The majority of the Senate is from another. Yeah. As historian Eugene Sheridan notes, quote, if Jefferson viewed Federalists as covert monarchist conspirators, They regarded him as an unregenerate Jacobin fanatic Mm. who threatened their vision of the United States as an orderly, centralized, hierarchical republic. Jacobin fanatic. Jacobin fanatic who would now be presiding as president of the Senate. Take that. You can imagine what they had to say about that. Oh, I'm sure it was like, uh, wow, castor oil in the worst of days. Now, for Jefferson's part, Though some of his friends and confidants, Madison included, were concerned that he might not accept the post, the VP-elect wrote to his son-in-law on November 28, 1796, before he learned of the election results, that, quote, Few will believe the true dispositions of my mind on that subject. It is not the less true, however, that I do sincerely wish to be the second on that vote rather than the first. The considerations which induce this preference are solid, whether viewed with relation to interest, happiness, or reputation. Ambition is long since dead in my mind, yet even a well-weighted ambition would take the same side. As for serving under Adams, Jefferson was fine with that as well, as he explained in a letter to Madison on January 30th, 1797. Quote, Since our return from Europe, Some little incidents have happened which were capable of affecting a jealous mind like his. The deviation from that line of politics on which we have been united has not made me less sensible of the rectitude of his heart, and I wished him to know this. And also another truth, that I am sincerely pleased at having escaped the late draught for the helm, and have not a wish which he stands in the way of. So, even though, and again, like so much has been made of this election that, you know, you have a president and vice president from different factions, it seems like Jefferson was okay with that. And yeah, him and Adams had their disagreements. And we talked about this some in the Adams episode of the series. It seems like Jefferson was okay and he was really looking forward to being vice president. Well, it seemed like he liked debate. It seemed like they both liked debate, and that's probably what drew them together mm-hmm. uh, in the first place, is that they could kind of spar with one another yeah. and learn things about themselves they might not otherwise realize, and about the other as well. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, oil and water in the best of ways, unlike his uh, 
presiding over the Federalist Congress, <laughs> or his relationship with Hamilton. Right. And, and Hamilton was definitely one he always wanted to be right. And Jefferson had some of that himself. And But it seems like, yeah, him and Adams, they were able to harmonize a bit more. Mm-hmm. As Jefferson wrote to Benjamin Rush on January 22nd, 1797, quote, I have no wish to meddle again in public affairs, being happier at home than I can be anywhere else. Still less do I wish to engage in an office where it would be impossible to satisfy either friends or foes. And least of all, at a moment when the storm is about to burst, which has been conjuring up for four years past. If I am to act, however, a more tranquil and unoffending station could not have been found for me nor one so analogous to the dispositions of my mind. It will give me philosophical evenings in the winter and rural days in summer. Hmm. So basically Jefferson is saying here, there's trouble on the horizon and whoever was going to be president was going to have a heck of a time ahead of them. They weren't going to be able to please everybody. He's kind of glad he didn't get that. And this other place We'll give him more time to do the Jefferson thing, to be able to research and, you know, write his correspondence to the biggest thinkers of the time and be able to do the Jefferson thing of, you know, scientific exploration and all of this. Now, we discussed the 1797 inaugural in Adams' episode. This was the last moment that Washington, Adams, and Jefferson were together at Congress Hall in Philadelphia on March 4th, 1797. However, there was initially a question as to whether Jefferson would be there. In that same letter to Madison on January 30th, Jefferson informed him that, quote, I have turned to the Constitution and laws and find nothing to warrant the opinion that I might not have been qualified here or wherever else I could meet with a senator every member of that body being authorized to administer the oath without being confined to time or place, and consequently to make a record of it and to deposit it with the records of the Senate. So he was basically saying, Mm -hmm. I really don't need to be there for this, do I? (laughs) I mean, technically, on paper, there's nothing saying the vice president has to be there on Inauguration Day. Let's continue. Quote, However, I shall come on the principle which had first determined me, respect to the public. I hope I shall make a part of no ceremony whatever. I shall escape into the city as covertly as possible. There's that teasiness again. There's the teasiness. Oh, I'm so shy. I don't want all this attention on me. Please, 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 no. Where's my fainting couch? (laughs) And and especially, like, the fact that he went through all that in this letter to Madison. Oh, well, I really don't have to be there. But I guess I'll be there out of a respect for the public. But I really don't want anybody to see me. Mm Mm-hmm. Doth protest too much. Mm -hmm. Malone notes that Jefferson, though seeing the trip to Philadelphia in February as a, quote, tremendous undertaking, also had heard rumors that he considered the vice presidency beneath him and thus wanted to make a point of showing that he was not accepting it with reluctance. So 
Hmm. You know, and again, like thinking of public opinion and this protesting too much, you know, oh, well, I really have no ambitions whatsoever. If he was that concerned about public opinion and what folks thought about him and how he approached this new office, he had some ambitions in mind. He did, but you got to you got to think to at least I kind of think to the struggles that Adams had in the vice presidency. And he's probably yeah. like, hmm, how well is this office going to suit my ambitions, whether I protest or not? I don't know. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Well, and and we'll definitely see some of that yeah. as we go along, because that was definitely, you know, and, and it was a very awkward situation. I mean, can you imagine a Democrat and Republican having to be on the same ticket and having to work together for four years as president and vice president, however it worked now. It just, it would be so awkward. And it was awkward then. It was an awkward situation and him having to preside over a Senate that was majority the other party. Almost as awkward as our governor and lieutenant governor. (laughs) situation in North Carolina, but I this is true. I mean, and, and and we see gubernatorial and lieutenant governor situations like that. And, and yeah, it's, it's awkward. And this was awkward too. Now, Jefferson also had another motivating factor for heading to Philadelphia because the evening before his inauguration as vice president, oh. Jefferson was set to become president of the American Philosophical mm-hmm. Society. Now, no matter the political struggles, the opportunity to participate in this illustrious society was a joy that Jefferson could revel in. Again, this is the Jefferson stuff, the conversations, drafting scientific papers for the society. That was heaven for him. However, it also meant that he would actually have to go to Philadelphia. If he had hoped to come into the nation's capital without fanfare, he was sorely disappointed. His arrival on March 2nd, quote, was met by a company of artillery and welcomed by a discharge of 16 rounds from two 12-pounders. A flag was displayed bearing the device, Jefferson, the friend of the people. Now, he stayed with the Madisons his first night in town, but then moved into lodgings at Francis's Hotel for the remaining nine days there. Hmm. I wonder why that is. What, why just... Stayed in the lodgings or so. And that's the thing. Like, you know, Jefferson was always kind of respectful. He didn't necessarily want to inconvenience folks Mm, when he didn't have to. He liked having his own space. But the Madisons also didn't mind having him around and vice versa. He would have times that he would offer to the Madisons. Like when, and again, not a big spoiler alert, mm-hmm. but when he became president, he actually wanted the Madisons to move into the White House with him. Oh, wow. And stay there permanently. He just wanted Dolly to kind of be the ringleader. <laughs> Basically, he's like, Dolly, you can just, you can run things. Mm-hmm. But they were like, that's kind of, you know, bro, we see you, but uh, we don't need this to become like our frat house or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, this just right. this is awkward. We're we're too old for this. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. So the day prior to the inauguration, Jefferson called on President elect Adams and the two discussed the situation with France. Now, Franco American relations were at a low ebb as a result of the Americans negotiating a treaty with Britain that the French felt unfairly discriminated against them. So this is the Jay Treaty. Mm-hmm. 
Adams, knowing firsthand how well-received Jefferson had been in France, shared with him that his initial inclination had been to ask Jefferson to undertake a diplomatic mission to see if he could help to ease tensions. Now, I mean, of all people, John Adams could speak to how the vice president just needed something to do. (laughs) After eight years of presiding from the rostrum and feeling like he was doing nothing, he was like, maybe I'll give him something that he can do. Well, and he obviously saw the strength that he had because Jefferson, to your point, was very well received in France. In France. Why not leverage the strengths where you have them? Exactly. And, And that's the thing, like, you know, and... It wasn't even just hearsay. He had literally seen Jefferson interacting with folks in France. He knew this is the guy. But on second thought, he figured it might not be prudent because, you know, what's one of the biggest things about being vice president? Succeeding to the presidency if something happens to the president. And so just in case something happened to Adams, he wasn't planning on it, of course, but it was probably best for him to not be on the other side of the Atlantic just in case something happened. Yeah. There was also the matter of, quote unquote, personal disinclination Mm -hmm. with undertaking such a journey again. Because, I mean, we just went through, Jefferson hardly wanted to come to Philadelphia, so would he really want to go all the way across the Atlantic, knowing how difficult of a journey that was. Of course he would. Yeah, I mean, it'd be you know, with the French philosophers and, the, oh yeah, come on, give me a break. And the French wine, yeah, he'd be all over that. Well, it wasn't, this is 1797, so things were kind of rough in France at the time. He obviously liked it. Well, he liked it being rough. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I mean, he they don't call him Teasy McTeaserton for nothing. <laughs> anyway, no, I meant he obviously liked his time in, in France. Oh, he did, but that's the thing. Like, at this point, so he came back in 1789, right, right as the French Revolution was starting. Mm-hmm. And so at this point, you've had the, the glorious days, the early days of the French Revolution, mm-hmm. where everything seemed hunky-dory. And then you have the reign of terror and you right. have all these people being decapitated. Yeah. And then you end up with the directory government, which was weak. And that's kind of where they're at. It's, okay. it's, 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 things are still a bit rough. France is at war with mm-hmm. everybody. I mean, pretty much everybody. Okay. And so, but. I think Jefferson could probably be persuaded, throw in a couple of bottles of Bordeaux wine. He might be good with it. But still, it was just ultimately, it was like, this probably isn't a good idea. Right. But Adams had a backup plan. This guy, James Madison, Mm -hmm. that you've been palling around with, maybe he could join a three-man peace commission to France. I mean, he's already the acknowledged leader of the Democratic-Republican faction, and so this would make it kind of a bipartisan effort, as we would say it nowadays. However, Hmm. Jefferson had to share with Adams that if he thought Jefferson didn't want to go across the Atlantic, James Madison especially didn't, and indeed, Madison would never travel to Europe in his lifetime. Oh, wow. 
you know, it, and we go into that some with the Madison presidency and his pre-presidency episodes. He had some health issues. Mm-hmm. He just, he had a, what they called a weak constitution. Okay. You know, he gotcha. it was like, probably not a good idea. But he was like, I'll go ahead and mention it to him, but probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But still, this was a promising beginning. Actually, having the vice president involved with administration business, I mean, novel concept. It certainly hadn't been that way the last eight years. John Adams, again, could attest to that. So, getting a good start. Okay. A couple of days after the inauguration, Washington hosted a dinner for the new president and vice president, and afterwards, they walked a ways together. Jefferson shared with Adams that he had spoken to Madison about the Peace Commission idea and confirmed that, no, Madison would decline the offer. Adams then shared that it had come to his attention that the appointment would not have been well-received by other Federalists and that he had, quote, forgotten party sentiments in the rush of the enthusiasm Mm. over the inauguration. And this is one of those disappointing things about politics is that even with something that was seen as being in the national interest, you still had to, as a party leader, as as this political leader, you had to think about the party politics. And Federalists did not want James Madison negotiating anything mm. for the Adams administration. Mm. The matter of Madison's inclusion on the Peace Commission would prove to be the last time that Jefferson was consulted on administration business during the Adams presidency. Ooh, so that good start kind of going rocky now. It went downhill very quick. Well, goodness. Seems like Adams would have kind of kept the momentum going, but what's going on here? Well, and again, this was a weird time. So technically... George Washington was, quote-unquote, he had no party, quote-unquote. Everybody pretty much knew he was a Federalist. Mm. Everybody knew that he had these staunch, high Federalists. These were the ultras of the party that were his supporters. Adams felt that he couldn't completely throw them off, even though Adams was more of a moderate. Adams was like... You know, let's work across the aisle. He had friends, Elbridge Gary, who were Democratic Republicans, and even Jefferson, you know, to, to speak of Jefferson. He wanted to work across the aisle, but at the time, he didn't feel that he could because they had, the Democratic Republicans had launched attacks, you know, some even against Washington himself. And so, at the time, he couldn't completely buck the party. And so, indeed, as Adam shared with one of the men who would eventually be a part of the Peace Commission, it seems like he had regrets about involving Jefferson in the matter and considering him for the diplomatic mission. And mm-hmm. so, this was actually a letter, April 6, 1797, to, I just mentioned, Elbridge Gary, yeah. also from Massachusetts, quote, I made a great stretch in proposing it to accommodate the feelings, views, and prejudices of a party. I would not do it again, because upon more mature reflection, I am decidedly convinced of the impropriety of it. The nation must hold itself very cheap 
<laughs> that it can choose a man one day to hold its second office and the next send him to Europe to dance attendance at levees and drawing rooms among the common major generals, simple bishops, earls, and barons, but especially among the common trash of ambassadors, envoys, and ministers plenipotentiary. Good Lord, common trash. The trash. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. And this kind of speaks to something that we talked about with Adams and his tenure as vice president, you know, the, the whole titles controversy. Adams knew that these offices had to be revered. They had to be, they had to have this, you know, these are the folks who are up with the kings and queens. These are mm. the upper echelons. And so he saw that it may diminish the office of the vice presidency to say, oh, well, I'm just sending him as a as a diplomat, as a lowly diplomat. Mm. But still, yeah, common trash of ambassadors. Yes. Okay, <laughs> we'll see how well those roles work for you and your presidency. Bishops, maybe. earls, barons, trash, yeah. trash, 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 trash. <laughs> so thus, Jefferson made arrangements to receive his salary of $5,000 per year in quarterly installments and, after 10 days in Philadelphia, returned home. His stay at Monticello would be a short one, though, for Adams called Congress into a special session to begin in May. Mm -hmm. He just did that on purpose. He just did it on purpose. He just wanted to give him a week or two of Monticello and then, oh, all right, come back. Come back. Come everybody, back everybody come back. Yikes. I can imagine old Thomas Jefferson Teaserton is kind of growing a bit weary of the role at this point. And it's not even really, but, you know, what, a month into it? Oh, but just wait. Oh, yes. But wait, there's more. So, on his way to Philadelphia, while having breakfast in Bladensburg, Maryland, Jefferson learned on May 9th that he had some explaining to do. I can, I can hear Ricky. You got some explaining to do. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> So Jefferson had written a letter to his friend and former neighbor, Philip Mazai, over a year prior, criticizing supporters of the Jay Treaty. So this is that treaty right. that basically France felt Britain mm -hmm. got more than them. In the letter, which would come to be known by historians as the Mazai letter, Jefferson said that, quote, against us are the executive, the judiciary, two out of three branches of the legislature, all of the officers of the government, all who want to be officers, all timid men that prefer the calm of despotism to the boisterous sea of liberty. It would give you a fever were I to name to you the apostates who have gone over to these heresies, men who were Samson's in the field and Solomon's in the council, but who have had their heads shorn by the harlot England. Oh, my goodness. The yeah. harlot England. The harlot. Wow. So, biblical references mm -hmm. and, yeah. <laughs> now, unbeknownst to Jefferson, Mazai had had this letter printed in Europe, and after making its rounds in a few European papers, Noel Webster's Minerva had picked it up and published it. 
So this is one of those things back in the day. You send a letter to somebody, you make sure to mark it as private, confidential, whatever. You don't want to print it because there was this convention of you send a letter to somebody and you really want them to publish it so that the word gets out. But in this case, he hadn't done that. Amaziah had taken it as a cue to, well, this is really good stuff. Let's go ahead and publish it. <laughs> then it got back to the U.S. Oh, yeah. And everyone knew who the Samson's and Solomon's comment referred to. George Washington. Mm. Jefferson would enter Philadelphia a near pariah as the recently retired president still enjoyed great popularity. So there were some Democratic Republicans that were starting to attack him publicly, but by and large, it was still Washington. It was still, you know, his excellency. It was still this guy who represented the nation. He was the nation personified. And here, who is this vice president to start talking smack about Washington. Samson's and Solomon's and stuff. You talk mm. about Washington. 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 <laughs> I won't finish the rest of it. <laughs> Search for it on the internet. Yes. It's well worth it. As Jefferson often did in the face of public controversy, he opted to remain silent and let the matter pass on out of the news cycle and public attention. Teasy, teasy, teasy. He's like, you know, it's People are going to forget about it. There's going to be other stuff that comes up. Whatever. Now, his friend James Monroe urged him to avow the letter, but in consulting Madison about the matter, the two agreed that Jefferson's initial inclination to let sleeping dogs lie was the right one. <laughs> so Monroe, again, like one of the younger members of this, what would become the Virginia dynasty, he was like, let's just... You know, let's own it. Let's go ahead and say, yeah, Washington has given up to England. He's put us in a bad place. Jefferson and Madison were a bit calmer and were like, no, we probably don't need to do that. And we probably just need to forget that this happened. Mm -hmm. Though it would indeed pass, Washington and Jefferson would not have any further correspondence in the remaining years of the former president's life. So... This was the end of their relationship. Goodness gracious. Shut up. Done. Done. No more invitations to Mount Vernon. You come. We will be fishing or on vacation or whatever. We're not going to be here for you. Mm. Beyond just the, the furor over the Messiah letter, the special session of Congress would prove to be a contentious one. As noted by Malone, quote, in the midst of that session, he, i.e. Jefferson, said that political passions had reached such a point that men now crossed the street to avoid meeting men with whom they had long been intimate and turned their heads the other way, lest they be obliged to touch their hats. So things are getting tense. It is really factional. It is really, this is a low point in terms of any attempts of bipartisanship. As described by Malone, quote, the vice president, who had virtually nothing else to do, did a good deal of listening. And it may be safely assumed that the voices he heard were primarily Republican. Hmm. 
This would ultimately be beneficial for him in the long run as he grew into his role as the faction's primary leader. In the short term, however, Jefferson would be further embarrassed in taking up his role presiding over the Senate from the rostrum for the first time beginning on May 15, 1797. As explained by Sheridan, the beginning of a congressional session always started with an opening address from Adams, and because the Senate was controlled by Federalists, the chamber's official reply to Adams' address was, quote-unquote, inevitably laudatory. And as the presiding officer of the Senate, Jefferson was forced to sign the reply. So they're saying, you are great, you are wonderful, everything that you've said is fantastic, Jefferson, put your John Hancock on this. Hmm. And as we all know, we want to read what we're signing. And Jefferson was like, do I really have to sign this? Because I don't agree with it at all. But it was his role. He had no choice. He had to sign it. Moving forward, in order to avoid this unpleasant situation... Jefferson made a point of arriving in the nation's capital a few weeks after the legislative session began and also left a few days before it closed, except for the first session of the 6th Congress, which ended in mid-May 1800. He used the excuse that, quote, it was essential for him to leave early and enable the Senate to choose a president pro tempore because under the Presidential Succession Act of 1792, that official stood next in line for the presidency after the vice president. So basically, the president pro tempore, we have that role even nowadays. It's the person who can preside over the Senate when the vice president isn't available. Mm. And the president pro tempore is still in the presidential line of succession. Mm -hmm. But except for these absences, as noted by historian Joel Goldstein, Jefferson was diligent in presiding over the Senate. Jefferson would again take lodgings at Francis' hotel for the special session, and unlike when he was Secretary of State and expected to be at the nation's capital at times outside of the congressional session, he would not rent a full house to live in while in town to preside over the Senate. So this was something, you know, it speaks to the role of the vice presidency at the time that once the congressional session was done, why would the vice president be there? Right. The vice president has no other role. Yeah. Why not go home? Right. Again, from Malone, Jefferson, quote, fretted over his enforced idleness. Even before assuming office, he had reached out to his mentor, George Wythe, to get his insight on the role, given Wythe's extensive knowledge of, quote, parliamentary procedure. But Wythe had little advice to offer. Thus, at some point during his tenure, Jefferson began a draft manual to help guide his successors based initially on the rules adopted by the Senate in his first session, but on which he would build. Meanwhile, the most exciting thing to happen in that congressional session, the Senate voting to expel one of its own members, William Blount of Tennessee, for a conspiracy to use British aid to conquer territory held by the Spanish, occurred when Senator William Bradford, Federalist from Rhode Island, presided over the chamber as president pro tempore, as Jefferson had already left town on July 6th to return home to Monticello. So this was the big moment of this session, and Jefferson missed it. Ah, yikes, yikes, yikes. 
that's that's hardcore. But considering that Blount was a member of his own party, he was probably glad to miss it. <laughs> Jefferson's thoughts of his role as vice president can be seen in this following quote from a letter to Madison prior to taking office when he described it as, quote, the only office in the world about which I'm unable to decide in my own mind whether I'd rather have it or not have it. Wow. So this echoes what Adam said about the vice presidency. The most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. So here we go again. Yeah. And even though Jefferson admittedly, you know, Jefferson was one, he could find ways to make himself, to keep himself busy, to Mm -hmm. keep himself occupied. But still, even Jefferson is like, really just not doing anything. Why am I here? What, what is this role? And Malone notes that during his tenure, quote, as vice president, he, Jefferson, was in an anomalous position, but he thought of himself as no part of the Adams administration and felt free to criticize it as he saw fit. Out of regard to the proprietaries, however, and because of his extreme aversion to public controversy, he chose to avail himself of private channels only. So, especially given the embarrassment over the Messiah letter, Jefferson understood the importance of being discreet and cautious. You know, even though this role, it was technically, I mean, it was the second highest office in the land. You know, it's its a prominent role. It's a prominent constitutional office. Mm-hmm. And he could completely bash the Adams administration and he knew that people would listen, he was still like, probably not the best idea. Right. Still, some of Jefferson's private remarks did make their way back to Adams. Of course they did. And as the president wrote to one of these informants in late June 1797, that Jefferson's remarks were, quote, evidence of a mind soured yet seeking for popularity, and eaten to a honeycomb with ambition, yet weak, confused, uninformed, and ignorant. I have been long convinced that this ambition is so inconsiderate as to be capable of going great lengths. Mm. Their relationship is going down the the tubes. On the rocks. With the stage set for future political contentions, Jefferson left town and would have some months to enjoy life in his domestic situation in Charlottesville. This time would bring a joyous occasion for his family, because on October 13, 1797, Jefferson's 19-year-old daughter Maria married John Wales Epps, an event which would bring another young man into Jefferson's orbit who would ultimately become a political ally. Now, unfortunately, shortly after the marriage, when the newlyweds were getting ready to depart from Monticello, Maria fell out of a door and suffered an injury. Fell out of a door? Fell out of a door. Fell out of a door. I don't know, but she somehow managed it. Good grief. Okay. (laughs) This was not an auspicious start for the couple. Jefferson also suffered from a bout of bad health, but recovered in time to begin his journey back north. Now, as we were talking about, the second session of the 5th Congress began on November 13th, but Jefferson wouldn't arrive in Philadelphia until December 12th, again taking lodgings at Francis' hotel. 
Initially, there would be little going on in Congress, as they were mostly waiting to hear back from the peace delegation that President Adams had sent to France. Jefferson would take the opportunity to dine with members of Congress, as well as members of the American Philosophical Society. Again, trying to find something to keep himself occupied. Now, early in 1798, the House brought up impeachment charges on William Blount, who was the senator from Tennessee, who had been expelled in July. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the Senate would decide that Blount was unimpeachable because he had already been expelled. How can you impeach somebody who's already not part of the body? But you weren't there, so... And he wasn't there. (laughs) But Jefferson would in private express his opinion that he felt that impeachment was, quote, the most formidable weapon for the purposes of a dominant faction that ever was contrived, and proposed that a jury trial was more proper than the impeachment process. In a rather hypocritical twist, once Jefferson was president and his party was the dominant faction, he would push for the impeachment of Federalist federal judges. There was no mention of its injustice or of jury trials then, but I digress. On February 28, 1798, Jefferson would be forced to sit silently as Senator Joshua Coit, Federalist from Connecticut, read into the record of the Senate a printed copy of the Messiah Letter, pronouncing that, quote, nothing but treason and insurrection would be the consequence of such opinions. Mm. Coit and other Federalists would use the absence of much pressing business to attempt to embarrass the vice president who, as noted by Malone, they clearly saw, quote, as the leader of the opposition, and they would stickle at no misrepresentation in their effort to destroy them. Hmm. Wow. So they're using this time. They really don't have much to do. They're going at it. It's let's just start tearing each other up. Let's tear each other up. Sounds familiar. This lull period would come to an end, though, when official word finally made its way to Philadelphia about the Peace Commission's efforts in France. 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 Rumors had already been filtering across the Atlantic, and the word wasn't good. Finally, on March 5th, President Adams sent Congress word that the envoy's first official dispatches had been received and were in the process of being deciphered. On March 19th, Adams sent a follow-up message informing Congress that the negotiations had failed, but did not provide the dispatches from the envoys. Jefferson wrote to Madison two days later about this quote-unquote insane message and updating him on Democratic-Republican efforts to avoid war with France. Democratic-Republican leaders began harping on the fact that Adams had not, in fact, provided the dispatches from the envoys and began to openly wonder what the president was hiding from Congress. Thus, they put forward a resolution to call on Adams to provide the dispatches. Mm -hmm. Now we're getting somewhere. Show us what's going on. Right. Now, they should have grown suspicious when Hamiltonian Federalists joined them in voting for this measure, which passed overwhelmingly. However, any pause that they were given was too late, for when Adams handed over the dispatches, they learned that he was hiding the perfidy of the XYZ affair. All right, so he was he even though their relationship was on the rocks, he was still 
mm-hmm. kind of trying to look out for him. Probably save well, his own back, but well, and not even just Jefferson, but the nation as a right, whole. Right, right. Because to make a long story short, so when the American envoys arrived in Paris to begin negotiations, mm-hmm. representatives of the French Foreign Minister Talleyrand told them that they had to pay a bribe before the French government would agree to negotiations. This was standard practice, but the envoys were like, we're here to talk. We shouldn't have to pay a bribe for this. I mean, we're official representatives. Mm. And so they refused. And after a few other attempts to break through the logjam, they realized that the cause was hopeless. Right. But here's the thing. So... Adams knew how this would be received, and it was received as he thought. Not only was the public outraged when the initial news of these dispatches was revealed, it also caused trouble for Jefferson as rumors start circulating that he was conniving with the French against the U.S. government. Mm. As he wrote to James Monroe, quote, At this moment, my name is running through all the city as detected in a criminal correspondence with the French directory which was the government at the time, and fixed upon me by the documents from our envoys now before the two houses of Congress. So, ultimately, nothing of the sort would be found in the dispatches when published, so Jefferson was in the clear. You know, it wasn't that he had done anything or that anybody mentioned him. That wasn't in there. But the XYZ affair would become a drag on the Democratic-Republican chances to pick up seats in the midterm elections, and Jefferson could do little but sit back and watch things unfold. So in terms of Adams's part, he knew the public was going to be PO'd. They were mm-hmm. going to be upset. This was going to increase factional tensions. And people were going to start saying, we should go to war with France. Adams didn't want any of that. He wanted to work in a bipartisan manner. He didn't want war with France. He didn't want war with anybody. He didn't think that the U.S. was set up in a place that we could win a war. Mm -hmm. And so he knew how bad this would be, and that's why he held the dispatches back. But when they insisted, well, here you go. This is going to benefit my faction, and y'all are screwed. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. As Congress was still in session at the time, Vice President Jefferson was present in Philadelphia when his cousin, John Marshall, a burgeoning Federalist leader and one of the envoys who had been sent to France, arrived in June 1798. Marshall was hailed as a hero, and at a banquet around that time, a toast was given which became the famous summation of the envoy's stance in the XYZ affair. Quote, millions for defense, but not a cent for tribute. Mm. Jefferson stayed in the nation's capital for a while longer to gather all the information that he could on the situation with the French and to consult with remaining Democratic-Republican leaders in that city about a strategy to combat the plan of ultra or high Federalist, quote, to keep up an alarm about the French dispute in order to benefit politically. Okay. So even though there wasn't really much that he could do to stop this, he was like, we still need to kind of assess the situation, we need to minimize the damage, and we need to work together as a party. What are we going to do? Before the vice president left town at the end of June, however, he was witness to the passage of the Naturalization Act and the Alien Act. After his departure, 
Congress also passed the Alien Enemies Act and the Sedition Act. Mm -hmm. All these four was a group of government measures that would come to be known Mm -hmm. as the Alien and Sedition Acts. Yes. Something else that sounds rather familiar. Yes. So this is one of the big, and it's, it's really considered a black mark on the Adams administration, even though Adams didn't necessarily agree with it. He also felt that he couldn't, it wasn't veto worthy, mm. that, it, that it didn't violate the Constitution from his point of view. And so he signed them, and thus Adams is typically given some of the blame for the Alien and Sedition Acts. To briefly summarize these acts, let's start with the Alien Act, or the Alien Friends Act, as it is sometimes known which provided the president with broad authority to expel non-citizens felt to be, quote, dangerous to the peace and safety of the United States. This act was not directly enforced, but some foreign citizens, fearful that it would be applied to them, did leave. It expired as stipulated in the act after two years. The Alien Enemies Act provided more support to the impulse behind the Alien Act take action against non-citizens deemed to be a threat to the U.S. This one did not expire with the other acts and remains to this date, 2023, as of this recording, it remains federal law. Yes. Chapter 3, sections 21 to 24 of Title 50 of the United States Code. James Madison went on to use this law against British citizens in the War of 1812 Woodrow Wilson had it amended during World War I as it specified acting against quote-unquote non-citizen males to remove the gendered language, and Franklin D. Roosevelt involved it in presidential proclamations during World War II to take into custody and remove German, Italian, and Japanese citizens in the U.S. Yes. So this is a lingering legacy of this period in American history that is now over two centuries removed from us. Precedent setting. Precedent setting. The Naturalization Act raised the number of years of U.S. residency required to become an American citizen from five to 14 years. Though there was no end date on this act, it was repealed by the Naturalization Act of 1802. The big one, though, was the Sedition Act. The big one. Elizabeth, I'm coming to join you. Elizabeth, I'm coming to join you because this was the shocker. Oh, my goodness. All these others dealt with non-citizens or people, mm-hmm. you know, non-citizens, people right. coming to the U.S. from other nations. The Sedition Act stipulated that anyone, which could include U.S. citizens, mm-hmm. Anyone found to be conspiring against the United States government, quote, shall be punished by a fine not exceeding $5,000 and by imprisonment during a term not less than six months nor exceeding five years. And further, at the discretion of the court may be beholden to find sureties for his good behavior in such sum and for such time as the said court may direct. Further, quote, If any person shall write, print, utter, or publish, or shall cause or procure to be written, 
printed, uttered, or published, or shall knowingly and willingly assist or aid in writing, printing, uttering, or publishing any false, scandalous, and malicious writing or writings against the government of the United States or either House of the Congress of the United States or the President of the United States with intent to defame the said government or either House of the said Congress or the said President or to bring them or either of them into contempt or disrepute or to excite against them or either or any of them the hatred of the good people of the United States or to stir up sedition within the United States or to excite any unlawful combinations therein for opposing or resisting any law of the United States or any act of the President of the United States done in pursuance of any such law or of the powers in him vested by the Constitution of the United States or to resist, oppose, or defeat any such law or act or to aid encourage or abet any hostile designs of any foreign nation against the United States, their people or government, then such person, having thereof convicted before any court of the United States, having jurisdiction thereof, shall be punished by a fine not exceeding $2,000 and by imprisonment not exceeding two years. Whew, that was a mouthful. That was a mouthful. But I felt it important to read in its entirety because that just said you can't print, you can't say anything against the president or Congress, the government of the United States. Mm -hmm. You cannot say that any law, any act that they pass is wrong. Otherwise, you are being seditious and you will be punished monetarily in these impositions. So thousands of dollars at that time, this was a large amount of money for the time. And then on top of that, a prison sentence for saying something against the government or a government official. I had to go Pulp Fiction there for a minute because I just kept <laughs> thinking about the what Samuel Jackson said in uh pulp fiction and anytime you heard ezekiel twenty five seventeen, that was your <laughs> <laughs> it, basically it was don't say anything bad because that was your that's right while deadline of march 3rd 1801 was set for the sedition act to be automatically declared null and void in the time between its passage on july 1798 and its end date it was invoked against numerous Democratic Republican newspaper publishers, including Representative Matthew Lyon of Vermont and Benjamin Franklin's grandson, Benjamin Franklin Bosch. So this is, and, and we're going to get more into this, with the passage of the Alien Sedition Acts, Jefferson goes into, not necessarily open, but behind the scenes, active opposition. Right. Jefferson arrived back at Monticello on July 4th, 1798, and he remained there until returning to Philadelphia in mid-December. While he was dealing with the renovations to his home, as well as personal matters at the time, Jefferson was also orchestrating something that would become infamous, the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions. As stated by Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone, quote, The story of the drafting of these resolutions 
was a closely guarded secret for very many years, and it cannot be told fully, even now. Mm. So James Madison's authorship of the Virginia Resolutions was not known until he became president in 1809, while Jefferson's authorship of the Kentucky Resolutions was not known until a little while later when he was firmly in retirement. So, you know, over 10 years after they drafted these resolutions, yeah. people still didn't know where they came from. Wow. We do know that Madison was in Monticello overnight on July 2nd and in late October, but no letters between the two exist that discuss the resolutions, and neither man left any notes about their meetings at Monticello. Given the clauses of the Sedition Act, it's understandable that they took extra precautions to protect themselves. So Ezekiel uh, twenty five seventeen again. <laughs> exactly. Do not write it. Do not speak it where somebody may hear you. Right. But they knew they had to act. We do know that the Kentucky resolutions were drafted sometime before October 4th because Wilson Carey Nicholas wrote to Jefferson about them. And it was Nicholas who made the handoff of the draft to State Representative John Breckinridge of Kentucky, who would, in turn, introduce them in the Kentucky State Legislature, which we discussed in Breckinridge's seat at the table episode, because he ended up becoming a cabinet member under President Jefferson. Right. While these resolutions were primarily intended to protest the Alien and Sedition Acts, the Kentucky resolutions in particular are notable for what they say about the relationship between the states and the federal government. Jefferson's draft asserted that, quote, where powers are assumed by the federal government which have not been delegated, a nullification of the act is the rightful remedy. That every state has a natural right in cases not within the compact to nullify of their own authority all assumptions of power by others within their limits that without this right, they would be under the dominion, absolute and unlimited, of whosoever might exercise this right of judgment over them. So let's pause there for a moment. Mm -hmm. This is basically Jefferson saying that the states have the right to nullify an act of the federal government. Okay. That they see as unconstitutional. But it's on their authority. They can say, this is unconstitutional. This is not right. We're going to nullify it. Very interesting. Is Again, familiar refrain with modern day politics. Yeah. Well, and, and this gets to the idea because there was still debate and there would still be debate until the Civil War. Were these a confederation of states and the states held the power? Or was the federal government the true supreme authority? Was this these United States or the United States? Mm. Was this one nation or was this a mm -hmm. confederation of nation states? Right. And Jefferson, for his part, felt that government should be as local as possible. And so it makes sense that he said states were the final authority over what was constitutional. Now, though the final version would not contain the word nullification, and as noted by Malone, quote, the specific actions they, i.e. the Kentucky resolutions, called for were relatively mild, 
this idea of nullification would be taken up by future generations, including someone that we'll talk about in this series, a guy named John C. Calhoun. Mm-hmm. Sounds a little vaguely. And the seed of this was planted by the Vice President of the United States in 1798. Now, that summer and fall of 1798 were challenging for both Jefferson and the President under whom he was serving. As noted by Malone, quote, Neither the President nor the Vice President was unmindful of international affairs that summer and autumn, and Adams was beginning to be aware of domestic developments behind his back. But unquestionably, his subordinates took advantage of his absence from Philadelphia. We cannot be sure how soon or how fully Jefferson became aware of high Federalist machinations, but obviously it is less correct to say that he and his party were beginning to encompass the defeat of the men in power than that the latter were paving the way for their own downfall. So politics was happening and inter-party politics was happening. Things were starting to shift, and the Alien and Sedition Acts were a part of that. Jefferson returned to Philadelphia and his seat presiding over the Senate on Christmas Day, 1798. The Senate was considering building up the military in anticipation of war with France. By this point, Jefferson's old nemesis, Alexander Hamilton, had been named as second-in-command to Commander-in-Chief General George Washington, which meant that Hamilton was the de facto head of this new military force being assembled. Vaguely familiar here, too. Vaguely familiar here, and you can imagine what Jefferson felt about that. Oh, I'm sure. Jefferson, meanwhile, was coming under criticism for corresponding with folks in France. As Malone notes, quote, While properly refusing to concede that there is anything treasonable in the private exchange of views and information by individuals in two countries which were technically at peace, Jefferson himself had prudently refrained from writing friends in France since he had ceased being Secretary of State. Mm. Despite that, reports were being published in the papers that Jefferson had sent letters to leaders in the directory government, including French Foreign Minister Talleyrand, via a friend, Dr. George Logan. The Federalist-dominated Congress passed what was dubbed Logan's Law, which read as follows, quote, any citizen of the United States, wherever he may be, who, without authority of the United States, directly or indirectly commences or carries on any correspondence or intercourse with any foreign government or any officer or agent thereof with intent to influence the measures or conduct of any foreign government or of any officer or agent thereof, in relation to any disputes or controversies with the United States, or to defeat the measures of the United States, shall be fined under this title, or imprisoned not more than three years, or both. Hmm. This section shall not abridge the right of a citizen to apply himself or his agent to any foreign government or the agents thereof for redress of any injury which he may have sustained from such government or any of its agents or subjects. So this is basically saying nobody, unless they are directly authorized by the U.S. government, should be talking policy right. with any foreign government. Right. And they also shouldn't be saying, well, I don't really like what the U.S. is doing. Why don't you do something about that? 
A British observer around this time wrote that, quote, the situation of vice president is rendered uneasy to him, i.e. Jefferson, by the state of politics as he presides over the Senate and they annoy him by their remarks frequently. Mm. However, the end of the session would find President Adams turning more towards Jefferson's viewpoint as he sent a special message to Congress nominating William Vance Murray as U.S. Minister to France. So this was a time that a sizable portion of the Federalist faction wanted to go to war. President Adams wanted to give diplomacy another go. He ultimately had to bend to the wishes of the High Federalists that, rather than going solo, Vance Murray would be part of a three-man commission like the one sent earlier. But still, as Jefferson left Philadelphia on March 1st, 1799, President Adams had won out that peace with France was being given a second chance. As Malone notes, during the course of the year, Jefferson, quote, maintained a virtually impenetrable silence respecting the commission to France. So this was Jefferson and Adams being on the same page. So Jefferson returned to Philadelphia on December 28, 1799, lodging again at Francis's Hotel. This would prove to be the last congressional session held in that city. And the last time he stays in Francis's Hotel, hopefully. The last time Francis is not going to see him ever again. I bet you they're happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully he gave him a nice bottle of wine or something. I mean, he had a couple around, so. Maybe. Maybe. Now, this session would begin with the news of the death of former President George Washington. And two days prior to his arrival, it had been pronounced by Congress, quote, as a day of formal mourning. The next two months between Washington's passing and his birthday would be filled with public events across the nation celebrating his legacy. And, you know, Alex, we've seen, you know, presidential funerals and those times before, but this is this is something that I don't think that we can imagine just the role. I mean, Washington was the superstar. It It wasn't a question there weren't hundreds of thousands of folks competing for this and now he was gone the father of our country yeah. the father of the country for jefferson's part he sat in a chair draped in black for a month while presiding over the senate hmm. shortly after arriving in philadelphia the vice president also learned of the coup of 18 brumaire which brought napoleon bonaparte to power as the first consul of france under the consulate government now, politicians in the nation's capital could only wait to hear back as to how this development impacted the Peace Commission. You know, at this point, Napoleon was not somebody who was well-known. They had no idea what this new change in the French government, which, I mean, it was becoming a pretty regular circumstance, but what this would mean for the possibilities of peace. And by mid-January, Jefferson was sharing with correspondents, quote, that there was not enough business to occupy the Senate half an hour a day. In early February, he learned of the death of the man that he had enslaved, Jupiter, who had been, quote, his coachman and companion of the road since student days, as well as the death of the first child of his younger daughter, Maria. So, wow, there's a lot of death going on and a lot of just kind of lingering with little to do. Jefferson used this downtime to keep up a healthy correspondence with intellectuals like Joseph Priestley and Dupont de Nemours, as well as sit for a portrait by Rembrandt Peale. 
the vice president would also begin work on what would come to be known as the Senate Manual or Jefferson's Manual. And this is a compilation of Senate rules and procedures that continues to be a reference to the present day. So we had talked earlier that he had started kind of compiling this, Mm -hmm. and this is when he really brought that work to fruition. So this continues to be a reference for the Senate to the present day, and the House eventually adopted the manual as its guide for procedure as well. So this is something, you know, especially when we get to talking about his impact as vice president, you know, this is one of the big things. This would be a lasting legacy of his. He also continued to receive reports on the state level of efforts of Democratic Republicans, including from his home state of Virginia, where his faction had taken control to the point that one of his protégés, James Monroe, had been elected governor. Democratic Republicans were also on the ascendancy in Pennsylvania, which likely came as comforting news to the vice president. And especially at this point, Pennsylvania was one of those key states in knowing that an election year was just around the corner starting to take back some of these states every time it meant the chances became even greater that they may just have a chance at the presidency. Also, in the states that were controlled by Democratic Republicans, state leaders worked at the time to amend the laws awarding electors in their respective states to be more amenable to a potential Democratic Republican presidential candidate. And of course, at this point, the presumptive candidate was Jefferson himself. Yeah. So we see the political machinations going. Jefferson worked to get friends and supporters to publish articles and essays attacking the Alien and Sedition Acts, as well as supporting Democratic-Republican efforts in the upcoming election. One of the folks who worked on Jefferson's behalf at this time was a Scottish-born newspaper journalist in Virginia named James Thompson Callender. That name sounds familiar. Yes, Callender has become a rather infamous name. Callender, who Jefferson supported financially, was notorious for his virulent attacks against President Adams and Federalists in general. One track called The Prospect Before Us asserted that, quote, the reign of Mr. Adams has hitherto been one continued tempest of malignant passions. Jefferson, upon reading this work, praised it and told Callender that his pamphlet, quote, cannot fail to produce the best effect. So, and again, we had talked earlier about that Jefferson tried to stay above the fray. Oh, well, you know, I'm not really, I'm not one of those politicians. (laughs) He was. He was reading what Callender wrote and saying, yeah, go ahead and publish this. Now, remember, we just talked about the Sedition Act. Mm -hmm. This work would result in Calendar being arrested, tried, and convicted for sedition in May and June of 1800. Mm. Jefferson would ultimately come to regret his association with Calendar because he wasn't supporting the vice president's campaign for president out of the goodness of his heart. You know, the, he wasn't saying, I'm just doing this for poops and giggles. Yeah. He intended to ride Jefferson's coattails but he would find that the man from Monticello was not going to grant Calendar a government position once he was in office. At that point, and this is more getting to his presidency, once Jefferson was president and denied Calendar the role that he wanted, Calendar then turned his poison pen on Jefferson and revealed his parentage of Sally Hemings's children. Ooh. 
But of course, that's on down the line. We're still in the vice presidency. But what's important for us to know now is that this final congressional session in Philadelphia was a time where presidential politics were really kicking into high gear. Democratic Republicans held a caucus on the evening of May 11, 1800, and chose former U.S. Senator Aaron Burr of New York as Jefferson's running mate. And of course, unanimous, no question, Jefferson was going to be their candidate for president. By mid-May, Jefferson made his departure from Philadelphia, and though he originally planned a route home, which would allow him to avoid Richmond for fear that a fuss would be made over him publicly in that city, ultimately he did go to the state capital of Virginia and stayed with the governor, his friend, James Monroe. Mm -hmm. He arrived in Monticello in late May and stayed there until the end of October when he traveled to one of his other estates, Poplar Forest, which, you know, we've visited Monticello as well as Poplar Forest. Right. It wouldn't be until the last week of November before he made his way to the nation's new capital, Washington, D.C. While still at Monticello, Governor Monroe reached out to the vice president on September 15, 1800, to get his advice on what to do in response to a recent insurrection of enslaved individuals dubbed Gabriel's Rebellion after one of its principal leaders. This rebellion, which Monroe dubbed, quote, unquestionably, the most serious and formidable conspiracy we have ever known of the kind, led to the arrest of numerous enslaved individuals, and the retribution in terms of executions were starting to add up. Thus, Monroe wrote to his friend and mentor asserting that, quote, where to arrest the hand of the executioner is a question of great importance. It is hardly to be presumed a rebel who avows it was his intention to assassinate his master, etc., if pardoned, will ever become a useful servant, and we have no power to transport him abroad. Nor is it less difficult to say whether mercy or severity is the better policy in this case. Though where there is cause for doubt, it is best to incline to the former counsel. I shall be happy to have your opinion on these points. Mm -hmm. So, basically in this, Governor Monroe is saying... He's starting to get kind of squirmish about all the people who are being executed. Although there's also the element of this that basically the state would have to pay their owners for executing them. Wow. So there was also a price point involved, which, of course, we think more of the humanity. But yeah. Yikes. But then also it was expensive if they just wanted to ship all these individuals further south, somewhere else, just get them out of Virginia. And so he wrote to Jefferson, what do I do here? Jefferson replied to the governor that, quote, where to stay the hand of the executioner is an important question. Those who have escaped from the immediate danger must have feelings which would dispose them to extend the executions. Even here, where everything has been perfectly tranquil, but where a familiarity with slavery and a possibility of danger from that quarter prepare the general mind for some severities, there is a strong sentiment that there has been hanging enough. The other states and the world at large will forever condemn us if we indulge a principle of revenge or go one step beyond absolute necessity. Basically, Jefferson is telling Monroe, this could look really bad for Virginia. Mm -hmm. There are going to be other people who question us for this. We realize that the people who were immediately involved, whose lives were at risk or 
who maybe had a loved one or a friend killed in this, yeah, they're going to be out for blood. And they're probably some Virginia gentry. But let's think big picture here. Is this really worth it? And he's saying even here in Charlottesville, folks are saying the lesson has been learned. So while Jefferson waited in Virginia, his friends and supporters across the nation were working on behalf of his presidential candidacy. He received extracts from a popular pamphlet circulating at the time, which described him as follows, quote, Jefferson, mild, amiable, and philanthropic, refined in manners as enlightened in mind, the philosopher of the world, whose name adds luster to our national character, and as a legislator and statesman, stands second to no man's. Jefferson still lives. On him then, concentrate your present views and your future hopes. Hmm. Now, it was becoming increasingly apparent as summer gave way to fall that the prospects for Democratic-Republican candidates were bright in the upcoming election. Not only was it likely that he would take the presidency, but also that the faction would take control of Congress. Thus, the vice president set out for Washington, D.C. on November 24th and stopped at Montpelier on the way to ask his friend, former Representative James Madison, to serve as his Secretary of State. When he arrived at the new capital, he took up residence at Conrad and McMunn's boarding house, quote, on the south side of Capitol Hill at the corner of New Jersey Avenue and C Street within easy reach of the Capitol, that is, the North or Senate wing the only part of the projected structure that was finished at the time. So this was a big change from Philadelphia. You know, Philadelphia was this actual city. You know, it had attractions. It had plenty of lodging. And lots of folks coming to D.C. for their congressional terms, for their federal post. We're like, why are we in this swamp with these few rickety buildings? And is that supposed to be the capital? Because it looks like it's still being built. (laughs) But still, Jefferson took his place on the rostrum or whatever was acting as the rostrum at the time while still under construction to preside over the Senate and wait for the electoral ballots to be counted. Jefferson wrote to his running mate, Burr, on December 15th of the near certainty that they had achieved victory. However, by the end of the month, the vice president learned that something had gone wrong. Don't, don't, don't. Because remember, Alex, at this point, electoral votes were cast Mm -hmm. for candidates in a common pool, rather than saying this is a vote for president and this is for vice president. Each elector just cast two ballots. And the top vote getter became president, while the next highest vote getter became vice president. Mm -hmm. This worked as long as someone threw some votes to another candidate as they had in previous elections. So this had happened with Washington. Mm -hmm. You know, they made sure that Adams got enough votes, but it wasn't that everybody voted one vote for Washington, one vote for Adams. The electoral count would come out in favor of the intended presidential candidate in that case. This time, though, the Democratic-Republican electors had cast equal votes for Jefferson and Burr. And thus, 
each ended up with 73 votes. Yikes. Which meant, according to the Constitution, the election was thrown into the U.S. House of Representatives for them to decide who would be the next president. But before we get to that contest, just breaking down the votes, most of the Democratic-Republican electoral votes came from the South, with only Delaware's votes going to the Adams-Pinckney ticket. Jefferson and Burr also got the votes from all 12 electors from New York and eight of the 15 electors from Pennsylvania. So we're starting to see some sectionalism here. Mm -hmm. While waiting for the votes to be officially counted, because even though they knew because the electors told everybody, here's how I voted, and so letters were sent, they were like, okay, well, here's what it's going to be when we officially count it, but still had to wait for that because there was a certain day that that had to happen. Jefferson traveled down to Mount Vernon in January 1801 to visit with former First Lady Martha Washington. Hmm. So, you know, it, it's one of those things, and this was still early on. This wasn't necessarily a precedent or anything, but it's interesting that he made that journey mm -hmm. seemingly to kind of connect himself with that Washington legacy. But finally, on February 11th, the joint session of Congress officially counted the electoral votes, confirming the tie, and the House began to cast its votes to break the stalemate. So you would think, okay, well, everybody is saying we intended Jefferson as our presidential candidate. Just go ahead and give it to him. However, a contingent of Federalists had decided to support Burr, thinking that they could potentially work with him to retain some modicum of power. So they're like, this guy, you know, and, and we'll talk more about this when we get to Burr's episode next time. He was seen as somebody who could work across the aisle. And so they were thinking, we can probably work with him easier than with Jefferson. Mm -hmm. So maybe he needs to become president. There's nothing saying that he can't. But failing that, if a president was not chosen by March 4th, when Adams and Jefferson's terms ended, the presidency would devolve on the president pro tempore of the Senate, who would be a Federalist, as that faction still controlled the Senate in the 6th Congress. In the tie-breaking vote, the votes were cast by state. So whoever had a majority of the state's congressional delegation would win that state's vote. Over the course of five days, 35 ballots were held, with eight states voting for Jefferson, six voting for Burr, and two states with split delegations, and thus not casting a vote. Unfortunately, Jefferson needed one more state to vote in his favor before victory could be declared. Finally, on the 36th ballot, on February 17th, Federalists from Maryland and Vermont abstained, allowing the Democratic-Republican congressmen from those states to carry the day and swing those two into Jefferson's column, thus making him the third president of the United States. Oof, wow. It was really tense. And again, we'll talk more about this in Burr's episode because this becomes part of his challenge as vice president coming in under this cloud. But, you know, there were rumors flying. Folks were like, what is going on? Who is doing what? It was a constitutional crisis. Yeah. But finally, it was settled. When the deadlock broke, Jefferson was greeted by well-wishers at the Capitol, and then he welcomed visitors at the reception room at his boarding house. In order to focus on his upcoming inauguration, Jefferson gave a brief speech to the Senate 
announcing that he was vacating his seat presiding over the Senate and a president pro tempore would be chosen for the next few days in his absence. In his speech, Jefferson told the body that he had presided over for four years that, quote, as the time is near at hand, when the relations will cease, which have for some time subsisted between this honorable house and myself, I beg leave before I withdraw to return them my grateful thanks for all the instances of attention and respect with which they have been pleased to honor me. In the discharge of my functions here, it has been my conscientious endeavor to observe impartial justice without regard to persons or subjects. And if I have failed of impressing this on the mind of the Senate, it will be to me a circumstance of the deepest regret. I may have erred at times. No doubt I have erred. This is the law of human nature. For honest errors, however, indulgence may be hoped. Hmm. I owe to truth and justice at the same time to declare that the habits of order and decorum which so strongly characterize the proceedings of the Senate have rendered their umpirage of their president an office of little difficulty, that in times and on questions which have severely tried the sensibilities of the House, calm and temperate discussion has rarely been disturbed by departures from order. Should the support which I have received from the Senate in the performance of my duties here attend me into the new station to which the public will has transferred me, I shall consider it as commencing under the happiest auspices. With these expressions of my dutiful regard to the Senate as a body, I ask leave to mingle my particular wishes for the health and happiness of the individuals who compose it, and to tender them my cordial and respectful adieu. Well, he do go on, don't he? Yeah, he do. <laughs> talk, 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 talk. <laughs> but it was, you know, a, a quite cordial farewell address. And on March 4th, 1801, Jefferson's term as vice president ended, and he became the first president inaugurated in Washington, D.C. Now, Alex... You, as well as our listeners know, he would go on to two terms as president, which he would have some great successes, mm -hmm. the Louisiana Purchase. He would also have some abysmal failures, the Embargo Act. He would retire at the end of two terms, go back to Monticello. He would really spend his time with a couple of endeavors. One, to get the University of Virginia started to get all that rolling, to get it off the ground, get classes started. But also, he was somebody who was heavily in debt. And so he spent a good portion of his time trying to get his finances in order. When he passed away on July 4th, 1826, they really weren't. And thus, mm -hmm. the enslaved individuals at Monticello were the ones who suffered because they, along with much of his property, were sold in order to try and pay his debts. His last remaining child at that point, Martha, and her children would be saddled with his debt for decades to come, and he would leave a complicated legacy for the nation. Still does. And still does, and there's a reason why I think so many students of history come back to Jefferson and examine him even 
so many years since his passing. You know, we're we're nearing two centuries since his passing, and we're still trying to deal with this legacy. But I did want to read this quote from Jefferson as he was leaving the presidency, because I think it really speaks to, you know, Jefferson was somebody who was very ambitious. He did seek public office, even though he said that he wasn't. But when it came time for his presidency to be over, he was ready. <laughs> oh, yeah. So this was a letter to Dupont de Nemours on March 2nd, 1809. Quote, never did prisoner released from his chains feel such relief as I shall shaking off the shackles of power. Nature intended me for the tranquil pursuits of science by rendering them my supreme delight. But the enormities of the times in which I've lived have forced me to take a part in resisting them and to commit myself on the boisterous ocean of political passions. I thank God for the opportunity of retiring from them without censure and carrying with me the most consoling proofs of public approbation. I leave everything in the hands of men so able to take care of them that if we are destined to meet misfortunes, it will be because no human wisdom could avert them. Well, that was definitely more succinct. I'm sure that was just an excerpt, but... Yes. <laughs> so before we get to our scoring categories, Alex, just what's your initial impression of Jefferson as vice president? Well kind of like my impressions of him just as a person, uh, very uh, brilliant mind, intellectual, philosophical, scientific mind. But he he doesn't like to get his hands dirty. Um, no. To me, that's uh, one of the big things about being a leader, you know, a president, a vice president, whatever. And so he it's almost like he wants to be the power behind the throne, even when he is the throne, as it were. Now, he's not the throne as the vice president, but still, there's a certain amount of image that's involved. And mm -hmm. he certainly did not want to, I don't know, it just seems like <laughs> Teasy McTeaserton, that's the same thing. <laughs> he, he just, he, he likes to say, I do, but I don't, but I do, but I don't. And it just, I don't know. He kind of leaves me very frustrated. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, you have this person who is the vice president who is also a party leader, mm. you know, and the preeminent party leader yeah. at the time. And that balancing act of trying to appear like you're not in the thick of it. Right. But you are. I mean, he was. He was the party leader. And there was no denying that. So I think let's go, let's start big picture here. And let's start with our resume category. So this round looks at the overall career and character of the vice president. So this is everything. Mm -hmm. And we can award up to 10 points maximum each. For his resume as vice president. As Thomas Jefferson. Oh, as Thomas Jefferson. Wow. Yeah. Oh, this is so difficult because, again, he has, you know, some resounding successes, but then he has, to your point, and verbatim, um, abysmal failures. In some respects, I wouldn't go so far as saying it's a 10, but in others, it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, I guess I'm just going to have to jump in and maybe say five as, as, you know, in terms of a resume, in terms of accomplishments and 
just as his role as a statesman and leader. Five. Five. Well, and, and that's the thing. Like, Jefferson does present, he presents quite a few questions. And, you know, of course, we couldn't go into all of his life. You know, we've covered that so much on presidencies already. And, you know, the audience is familiar with some of this. But, you know, we have somebody who did the first draft of the Declaration of Independence. So, yes, that was a big thing. We have somebody who served as the first Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. We have somebody who served as a an ambassador, a U.S. minister to France. You know, somebody involved in foreign policy. We have somebody who basically helped to pull together a party as its leader and took it to victory in the 1800 election. We have somebody who his administration was responsible for the Louisiana Purchase. Yeah. But then you start to ask how much of it was Thomas Jefferson and how much of it was the fact that Thomas Jefferson had the right people as his lieutenants, which, granted, there is something to be said about that type of leadership. You know, the fact that he did turn to people like James Madison, who would help to guide things. But then you also have, you know, his ideas for the Navy, the gunboat Navy was ridiculous it's been it's it was never going to work the embargo act it was an awful abysmal idea his diplomacy was lackluster at best Mm -hmm. you know he really the louisiana purchase just kind of fell into our lap because of circumstances and jefferson threatened that you know he ended up he threatened the Louisiana Purchase going through because he was like, oh, well, it's not really in the Constitution. And everybody else was saying, we don't really care. Just make the deal. But then we, you know, with his vice presidency and, and you know, this is interesting because we really, we talk more in our other categories about the impact of the vice presidency on the presidency of the time. But in this case, we have a vice president who was kind of doing things independently because mm-hmm. of the nature of he wasn't from the same party as the president. So naturally, he was going to be acting somewhat independently. And with that, can we count it as a success or failure? You know, you have the response to the Alien Sedition Acts, which we'll, we'll talk about, you know, specifically the Kentucky resolutions. You know, it's just, it's a mixed bag of how much was Jefferson and how much was just other folks were doing things and Jefferson happened to be in a place to take credit. Right. I know listeners are probably going to say that we, well, it's interesting. There are the pro-Jefferson folks and there are the folks who think, oh, well, he's way overrated. I'm going to go a little higher than you. I'm going to go. I'm going to go with a five and a half. Okay. Just because, I mean, he did get to the presidency. He did have a lengthy career and he was a major impact on American politics in the early Republic. So you can't say that it was necessarily a bad career. Right. We're also living in basically a Hamiltonian world. Right. Even though there are still folks and Jeffersonian ideas are still out there, by and large, 
the ideas of Hamilton and Washington are really the ones that have helped to guide the nation. So I don't think he can get the highest of marks, but I think a little above average yeah. fits well. Okay. So pretty, pretty close scoring there. Pretty close scoring. But let's go to the campaign poster. So this round examines the physical appearance of the vice president in their official portrait or photograph. Let's see what this Joker looks like. So I mentioned it in the narrative. You know, he sat in 1800 for this portrait mm. by Rembrandt Peel. And this is a pretty iconic Jefferson portrait. You know, there are a few that are really well known, and this is one of them. But this was Jefferson as vice president. So I'm showing it to Alex now. Mm -hmm. So Alex, describe what you're seeing. Well, comparing it to poor John Adams' campaign poster, <laughs> he's certainly not as curmudgeonly looking as Mr. Adams appeared in his poster. He seems to come off as a rather regal uh, person. It's a, it's a relatively pleasant poster. He looks like he's sure of himself, but then we all kind of know this, the backstory, so... Mm -hmm. It's almost kind of like, um, you know, false advertising in a way, but not <laughs> knowing that at the time, if I were just going to look at this campaign poster and say, oh, what do I think of it on a scale of one to 10, I'd probably give that about a seven and a half. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, this is definitely, he looks like a leader. And, yeah. you know, that's one of the things that we talked about with Adams, his, it just, he looked miserable to yeah. be there. <laughs> and in this case, you know, Jefferson looks confident, like his eyes are looking straight at you mm -hmm. and he's, you get the feeling this is a guy who really does want to lead and, and can lead. You know, he comes across as somebody, if you're just looking at him, you're like, this is the guy. Right. So I'm going to give him an eight. And so that brings Jefferson up to a 26 thus far. Mm -hmm. So he's doing well thus far. No, but just wait. <laughs> because now we get to our friend or foe category. This round evaluates whether the vice president supported the work of the administration or undercut the administration's efforts. And here we can either, we can grant up to a positive 10 points for a friend or deduct up to negative 10 points maximum for a foe. Wow. Well, I'm definitely not going to go positive here. Um, I may have to just give him a big old goose egg because, you know, in some, in some ways and in some instances, he totally undercut the president, President Adams. But in other ways, he tried to sound and appear to be supportive. So I'm going to just go for zero. Well, and that's something definitely to be considerate of here. And, you know, there he had the potential to really undercut the administration. Mm -hmm. And I think he realized that. He knew as vice president, he could come out and just lambast Adams. He mm -hmm. could lambast the cabinet. He didn't. Was he working behind the scenes? Yes. Mm -hmm. And there were times that he could have done more. And knew that he could have gotten away with it and didn't. He did have times that he said, you know, with the second peace commission yeah. that he was like, yeah, Adams is right. We need to go ahead and let this go through. We need to 
be at peace with France. I will give him a negative one just because, yes, he was campaigning against the seated president. He was trying to work campaign efforts against the seated president. But we are going to see vice presidents who really undermine the administration's efforts, not just behind the scenes, but will be right out front and center against the president. So more to come on that, but that does detract one point from Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. But now we get to the drag on the ticket category. This round discusses any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the vice president. This disgrace does not have to be during their tenure of office as vice president. So this one is completely negative, and we can detract up to 10 points maximum each. Okay. Wow. Well, just knowing what I know in terms of him being a slaveholder and what a brilliant intellectual mind he had, but how hypocritical he was in terms of that. There's just so much that's frustrating about him. He had so much potential. Um, again, brilliant mind, but he just was reluctant to put it into practice, probably partly because of the time in which he lived. But it just makes you want to just shake him. It's like, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing more? So I'm probably going to have to give him a negative three overall. So one thing that we haven't talked about is the Kentucky resolutions and this idea of nullification. And it's interesting. So Jefferson is the first vice president that we've also covered in the Seat at the Table series. Mm -hmm. And he, that discussion, we really focused on, you know, A, of course, slavery. You know, it's, he was an active participant in enslaving individuals. And that is awful. And there is no quantifying the horror of that. Also, the fact that he would not manage his personal finances, and and it wasn't that he couldn't. He knew he was doing wrong, and he just kept on spending Mm -hmm. because he wanted to be comfortable, and he didn't care about the impact that it would have on the enslaved individuals as well as his white family after his death. They suffered so that Jefferson could be comfortable personally. Yeah. Also, and again, like you were saying, Alex, you know, the the question always becomes how much could he have done in his time? We see others standing up and saying that slavery is wrong. Yeah. And he would give lip service to that, but he really didn't act against it. But getting to this idea of nullification. And how dangerous that became. I mean, that's one of the things that led to the Civil War. You have John C. Calhoun taking this idea of running with it. It becomes a crisis. And this idea of states are sovereign over the federal government. Yeah, good point. States' rights as an ideological leader. And yes, they did hold up Jefferson as an ideological leader. The secessionists, the Southern secessionists. And that's a dangerous legacy. Then we also have, as president, you know, he wanted to decimate the Navy. And then 
we end up in war with Britain and have to rebuild the Navy. The Embargo Act, mm. it decimated American business. It's sounding like you're going to go more negative than me. I am going more negative. I think I'm going to give him... I'm not going to go quite as high as we did on the Seat at the Table series, mm-hmm. but I am going to... I'm going to negative seven. Woo. Wow. He's not the worst. And there are positive aspects of his legacy, but he was also, he also had the potential to be dangerous. And I think there are parts of his legacy that are dangerous and have been detrimental Mm -hmm. to individuals, to peoples, to the nation. And so with that, he is losing 10 points in this round which brings him down to 15. Okay. But now he has a chance to earn some more points. So first of all, tenure of office, the entire time that the vice president served will be counted as points for this round. So he served for four years, thus he gets four more points. Then we have our bonus round. He can earn a bonus point for each election that his home state went for the ticket when the VP was at the bottom of the ticket. This one's a complicated one, because was he really on the ticket (laughs) as VP? Right. I think because he did win Virginia in 1796 when he became vice president, so I think we do have to give him a point here. Okay. Not going to award it for 1800, but we'll give it to him for 1796, Mm -hmm. because he did end up as vice president and won Virginia. He can earn a bonus point if the vice president served in another lower public office, either appointed or elected, after his tenure as vice president. He did not. He went up to the top, Mm -hmm. and that was it. One bonus point if he served out his entire term. He did, so he gets another point. And one bonus point if the vice president became president. We know that he did. Yes. One more bonus point. All right. And that brings Jefferson up to the grand total of 22 points. How does that compare with Adams? Adams got 41. Ooh, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, right now, Jefferson is last out of two. (laughs) But that doesn't necessarily mean anything when we ask ourselves the final question. Alex, after all I've shared about Jefferson's life and career and what we've discussed, do you think that this vice president is notable enough or impactful enough to preside from the Senate rostrum? Yes. Why? Well, as indecisive and as teasy McTeaserton as he was, I mean, he did have that ability, as reluctant as it seemed, and as frustrating as he was, but he ultimately did have that ability. Well, and it gets to, you know, it's like we were talking about with the resume. We can't deny that he had a great career. Mm -hmm. And... Even though his vice presidency isn't as well talked about, it was a key part of that. You know, this was a time that really big things were happening. And being at the center of power, at least close to the center of power in the nation's capital, being able to talk with folks behind the scenes, being able to really organize the federal party, you know, the the National Democratic Republican faction, 
it put him in a place that he became president, that he was able to build his legacy. But then also as vice president, the fact that he wrote the Senate manual that God's is a guide for yeah. deliberations yeah. and became a guide for the House. You know, he was an impactful vice president. This wasn't just somebody who was just sitting there twiddling his thumbs. He was active in those four years. And I think for that, I do agree with you. I think that he does get to preside from the rostrum. Okay. So congratulations, Thomas Jefferson. You leave a complicated legacy, but it's one that we're saying you are worthy of this study. You know, it's not, it's not that we shouldn't talk about Thomas Jefferson and we should. I think there's, there's still so much to know and understand about him and what, studying his life and legacy in turn can help us to understand. So congratulations, Thomas Jefferson. We now have the first two vice presidents done. And next up, Alex, is Aaron Burr. I know I, for one, have been waiting, waiting for years to be able to focus in on Aaron Burr. And I'm reading the biography now. I am so excited about being able to share this with you and with our audience. If you thought we had a lot to talk about with Adams and Jefferson, just wait. <laughs> and I wonder where he's going to score in relation to them. It's going to be interesting to see. It will be interesting to see. And we will find out next time. For our listeners, I actually did do a poll on Twitter. And yes, I refuse to call it X. It is still Twitter. <laughs> Take that, Elon. (laughs) I did a poll because it's going to be a long one. I mean, there's a lot to talk about. And because we haven't, you know, spoiler alert, Aaron Burr did not become president. We haven't covered him in a series on the podcast to date. We are doing his full life. There's a lot to talk about. And pretty much everybody agreed. We've got to split this one into two episodes. So we will have the first episode, which will get us up to his vice presidency. And then the second episode will cover his vice presidency in the remainder of his life. And then we'll score then. But until then, thank you, Alex, for being my co-pilot on this series. I felt more like an automatic pilot, but hey. (laughs) (laughs) We'll let TZ McTeaserson rest. And we'll we'll come back because he will be showing up in Aaron Burr's episode since he was the president while Burr was vice president. For our audience, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support. And until next time, stay safe and healthy. Be kind to one another. And take care, dear friends. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.